Everybody, you are listening to the Vocal Advancement Podcast, and I am one of your hosts, Tom, and I am joined by the lovely Heather today. Hello, Heather. Habari. Same to you. <laughs> I'm speaking Swahili today. Hmm. Not for the whole podcast, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Just to say hello. <laughs> How's it going? What's been happening? How's TikTok? <laughs> it's TikTok. It's, it's TikToking along, Tom. Is it ticking, is it? <laughs> it's ticking along. And not only am I TikToking, I'm also now trying to upload everything to YouTube because, you know, YouTube shorts are yeah. the in thing as well. As my kids keep it. telling me, I've been watching this on YouTube shorts. They're too young know, for TikTok. To... I don't let them have TikTok, but now they just watch YouTube shorts, which is probably everything transferred That's from on TikTok. TikTok anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Repurpose that content. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to change on a weekly basis. Next week it'll be TikTok will be the end thing again. And then the week after we'll be back to Instagram. And so This is the thing, is you keeping up with it. It's a full time job. I saw, I, I have a story to tell you. I mm. watched, it was a, a TikTok video posted on YouTube shorts, like you said, and it was a singer going for an audition at a famous opera house. And she was sharing her prep for her audition starting the night before. So her routine from the night before was after a very plain dinner was at bedtime, she taped her mouth shut so that she wouldn't she, she breathe did, through her mouth. Hang on, she, she, did, she did what? <laughs> she took medical tape and taped her mouth shut so that Is she couldn't breathe through. some kinky game that she did? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, that is a first. Zara. I have never heard or <clears throat> seen anybody do that. I mean, I, I guess I understand her thought pattern behind that because if you're sleeping with your mouth open, you can dry things out. Mm. Uh, particularly if you're a snorer, um, it, you can wake up with a rough voice from snoring all night. So I guess I understand what she's aiming to do, but my goodness, that is quite extreme. I thought so. Hmm. It's like, night, darling. <laughs> Get the duct tape my out. My husband would love that. Don't tell him about it. <laughs> He'll be trying to take my mouth up all the time. Save your voice, love. Here you are. <laughs> Protect those cords. <laughs> Wait, it's all for the voice. It's all for the voice. Oh dear, the things that you see on the internet. <laughs> Honestly, well, that is interesting. If you're listening out there and you are also a mouth taper, let us know. Does it work for you? Oh, that sounds like a program we're going to see in Discovery. Mouth tapers <laughs> of the world. I feel like that because, like, my husband's a snorer, and I think if I taped his mouth. Oh, before he went to bed, he'd managed to prise it open from underneath the tape anyway. He's that much of a, you know... Blow it off. Yeah, he would. At some point in his sleep, that tape would loosen and his mouth would still open. So I would be intrigued to see you know, how effective that actually is, because you'd need some pretty strong... Oh, I'd need proper Not good for us tape. gents as well with a beard. Like, that would be awfully painful in the morning to... <laughs> That's true. Might be Maybe shaving, mind you. At the same time, <laughs> us ladies need to do that occasionally. Anyway, maybe we could just team it in, <laughs> voice care, and get rid of that 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 stray hair that grows on your shin. Perfect, <laughs> sorted. <laughs> so, with that behind us, who's our guest today? Anyway. <laughs> so, 
dear me. We are talking to the lovely Ken Bozeman today. Yes. God of all voice things. Yes, um, he's such a such a wonderful presenter and a, a longtime friend of ours. You know, we've had Ken present for IVA oh, at least six, seven, eight years now. He's been coming to conferences and workshops and electives for us. So he's a, a good friend of us. He is. And he's very generous with his knowledge and um you know, he's technically retired, but he still is seems to be working Works more the than whole me. time. I was going <laughs> to yeah. say he's doing classes, workshops here, workshops there, you know, sharing, yeah. you know, guest lecturing here. And yeah, um, but he is, uh, if, for those of you listening, if you've not come across Ken before, uh, he really is like the king of vocal acoustics. And yeah. uh, he's just really into it, isn't he? Yeah, he he just has this amazing wealth of knowledge in his field, but also, you know, other things that go around the field. Because, you know, he he said himself, and as you'll hear in the interview, he was a, a performing singer, you know, and sang from a very young age. So, you know, he has the background of a singer, so he has that em- singer of a singer. So he has that empathy that comes, you know, of understanding what a singer's go through. So, you know, he does. It, so... But he also Let's... clearly likes his physics, unlike he does. Yeah, me. <laughs> and if you don't understand it, then there's no hope for me. <laughs> I try my best, but it's a chore for me to get the physics. Whereas he just loves it. He's like, I can't get enough of the stuff. Um, you know, the world yeah. needs a balance of people, right? Andreas, one of our co-founders, is like that. Physics is yeah. as easy for him as you know us it's having just... this conversation. Yeah. Whereas we'll I stick to our to biscuits, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you're talking the language of biscuit recipes, I could probably run circles around Andreas and Ken Bozeman, but... <laughs> there we are, see? <laughs> Vocal Everyone's acoustic physics, no chance. <laughs> <laughs> so then I think we should just chat to Ken and find out more about Ken. Let's do that. Ken, it's so lovely to have you joining us today on our podcast and you have been a longtime friend of IVA since we started 2013. We've we've had you many times to events and workshops and our conferences to present. So it's lovely to finally get a chance to chat to you on this kind of basis. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> We'd love to know a little bit about kind of how you got started, you know, I, I read your bio about how you started singing in church when you were, it was nine years old, was it? it oh, earlier than that, I'm sure, oh, really? as far back as I can remember. But yes, <laughs> my early singing was in the, in the church. And, and we had a fairly nice music program in that church and attentive directors. The early directors were all female, which was lovely, actually. And they were quite good uh, later in my uh, years, there were male ministers of music in this church, which were fine too. But um, I would, I, I sang a solo and, you know, in the church when I was about 10. And I was allowed, this is really funny. I was musically precocious. I, I, I was able to hear and, and sightseeing, you know, quickly. So mm. this, this lovely we did the Messiah every Christmas. Uh, and she let me as an unchanged soprano, sing in the bass part <laughs> an octave <laughs> higher <laughs> because that was the, the range that I could sing and I was reading bass clef somehow I don't know 
probably just <laughs> picking it up by ear from the basses that actually could read at that point. Uh, I remember singing the bass part of Messiah is about it, you know, pretty, you know. Amazing. Uh, Does music was, run in your family then? Were you encouraged well, by parents? Well, my, my, uh, none of them were professionals. My grandfather was a, what they called a tune heister, who was basically a song leader in the South. And he would travel around doing shape note singing. Do you know what shape note singing is? No. No. It was an, oh, it's an, maybe it's an American, it probably didn't originate here, but I don't know. At any rate, it's a notational system where the shapes of the notes are sort of like a solfege system. Okay. So, so a different shape note is a different scale degree in the key that you're in. And there would be these, you know, Sunday afternoon singings where they would sing hymns with these shape notes, uh, notations, and then my grandfather would go around and lead them. And then my father was, a, and he was a tenor, and my father was a tenor, and I was a tenor. Though they were lighter, higher, actually, tambored, higher tambored tenors than I, although I was not a, I was a, lyric, a light lyric tenor. <clears throat> but no, nobody was a professional. Even my grandfather actually ran a, a a soda bottling company for his living. And then he did the shape note singing. He volunteered that as a church member. Anyway, uh, and I had an aunt that was a church musician organist. But otherwise, we, we all, you know, just did music in church. And I studied piano from age nine on. So when I went to college, I'd never had a voice lesson. I had sung all my youth and I'd sung leads in some musicals because my voice developed and it had a nice quality, albeit a fairly, it wasn't a professional sounding, you know, it was a very, a very somewhat muted, but, but sweet, you know, untrained tenor. <laughs> and, but then I had a long journey as a singer because I, I didn't have great instincts for a really robust uh, sound. And I didn't have, I had good instruction in certain ways, a wonderful musical model. But uh, working out tenor passaggio is a bit of a trick for many of us. There are some that just sit mm -hmm. high. My voice did not sit high. When I went to college, I did not have a top. Uh, and I did not have, I, I discovered how to make sounds up there during the course of my undergraduate. But I was not going about it the best way. And there was a huge divide between my you know, modal sound and my, my aloft sound. And so it took me many years to sort that all out. All that said, <clears throat> I'm, I'm heading off and you can interrupt me at any point in this. <laughs> sure. But, um, since you punched that button. Sure. Um, my freshman year was the first time I really heard classical singing, uh, at least in a conscious way. Okay. Um, where I, I realized, oh my goodness, this is something. And I got her uh, two albums, I recall. One was UC Bierling singing sort of songs, some arias, but he was singing uh, Amy Beach's All Love But A Day. And there was a passage where he he did a transition from E flat to A flat into his upper voice on an awe vowel. And this sound was, amazing. this transitional sound was so arresting and amazing. I would you know, put the needle over and over and over again, because these are LPs, okay, you know, vinyl <laughs> LPs. And I'd move the needle and play that over and over and over again. What is he doing? What is he doing? You know, and then and then the first album that I bought of Fritz Wunderlich, I got at the corner pharmacy of all places at Baylor University, where I was a student. 
And the very first sound I heard him make was Freude, das Leben ist Lebenswert. It's a high A flat, I think. It's a Lehar uh, operetta. Amazing sound. I said, okay, I've got to figure out what what these people are doing. What they're okay. doing. <laughs> what they're doing. And it took me, that would have been in about 1969-70, my freshman year of college. It took me about 18 years before I really had my aha moment. Now, there were some places along the wow. way I noticed, okay, some there's this transition, this turning over, this, some people call it covering, historically we call it mm -hmm. covering, this turning, this transitional sound uh, that happens in that upper middle voice into the, the upper voice. And I think we pretty much all assumed it was a laryngeal phenomenon, that the that that color change was caused by a change at the level of the larynx because we assumed registration was purely laryngeal. I think most of us did, except for people like Bert Coffin. Um, well, anyway, I in I, I began, I figured out, I began to get the transition to occur on some vowels. I didn't know what it was. I said, well, that feels better. I'll do that, you know, that, that sound. I think I noticed it on an E vowel uh, in graduate school and then some other singers. And then I did a sabbatical let me think about this. Oh, I attended a Nats conference in 1981 in Minneapolis. Wow. And Tom, and Tom Cleveland, who is a wonderful uh, singing teacher that, that turned into a sort of a voice habilitator, and he worked in Nashville for years uh, at the Vanderbilt Clinic. He was presenting a paper on the singer's formant. They didn't call it the singer's formant cluster in those days. They just called it the singer's formant and how it related to vocal fog or category. You say, well, the, you know, the higher the, the singer's form, the, the lighter the category, the lower the singer's form, the heavier the category. And he was using a voice synthesizer to demonstrate it in this presentation at Nats. And he played a tenor singing an F major scale synthesized tenor, you know, F major scale up, up the octave. And it did that sound thing that I had been, you know, looking for no, for years. Mm -hmm. So I ran up afterwards and said, Tom, what did you program in this synthesizer to create that color change? He said, um, you know, did you do something? Said, no, I just, I just programmed the formers for an ah bell and I ran, a, ran an ah, a scale up. <laughs> and my mind went, it's, it's acoustic. It's acoustic. He didn't change the source. Now I know what I would call the source spectral slope. Mm -hmm. He kept inputting the same basic, you know, harmonic in, and that occurred. So that was step number two. But I didn't know what to do with that at the time. I just was wondering about it. In seven, six years later, in 1987, I was on a sabbatical at Oberlin. I was covering some, I was taking a sabbatical from my institution and covering someone's sabbatical at Oberlin so that I could work with Richard Miller and learn from Richard Miller, <laughs> who I, whose work I had read, The Structure of Singing, and he talked about mm -hmm. the tenor zona di passaggio, the transition zone, that you enter the primo passaggio at about a D5 and you exit it at about a G, I'm sorry, D4, and you exit it at G4, and then you're in your upper voice. So I was assuming that that transition would happen pretty much near that secondo passaggio, near the G. It was in a lesson with him singing an A vowel, A, not A, A, and my voice turned over on D4. And I, it was an unusual sound to me on the inside, felt comfortable. I said, I said Richard, 
what was that? Was that okay? He said, he said what was what? So what, what my voice just did on that A-ball, was that okay? He says, I don't know, do it again. So I did it again, he said, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> no more conversation. And his ear from all of his years of hearing good singing, he knew, yeah, that's what I'm supposed to do. But, and, I, and I'm, I'm going, oh my gosh, that's way lower than I thought this was supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. I had helped set up his lab because he had just gotten this KLMetrics 5500 huge computer in those days, this was 87. It was about a $17,000 instrument, which was a lot of money then. Uh, and I had read the manuals and set it up and was that was my practice room. And I went back there. And I noticed, oh, my voice wants to turn over in some parallel pattern to the, the shape of locations of first formants that I'd read about in Sundberg. And I and I said, this is this is interesting. Why haven't I read this somewhere? That was the the aha moment that the voice turns over in a parallel relationship with first form relationships, and it turns out to be when the you know an octave when an octave below when you're singing an octave below your first form location, and and you sing less than an octave below, it turns over, which means the second harmonic is passing through that first resonance. Uh, so I, I love that your brain just goes there, Ken, because not many people's brains would <laughs> well would start I thinking, thought, oh wow, the foreman's are the, the right, have you right. always had quite a physics kind of strong brain? No, Is I was good at math and physics in high school and then I, I lost that ability thereafter. You know, it sort of went downhill <laughs> from there. But but uh so I started playing with that. I think this is like the holy grail of vocal passaggio. What's going on here? Why haven't I read about this somewhere? Well, it turns out there are other things that one has to attend to as well, but that's a huge piece mm. of the equation. So I spent the next uh, 20 years, actually, working with that in the studio and in my own voice, worked out my own voice, eventually had to stop singing because of a health is issue, even as my voice was getting better and better. This health issue was uh, wreaking havoc on my thyroid muscle. I was wasting, mm -hmm. having muscle wasting. But I was helping my singers figure out their, their singing. And so I didn't write about it actually until 2007 when I was invited to write an article in a NAS journal that was honoring Richard Miller. Uh, every, all the articles in that feature were to honor his contributions. And I wrote about that whole situation. And it was called uh, uh, A Case for Voice Science in the Voice Studio. Yes, I'm I think I've read that, that article. <laughs> and then I started getting invited to write other articles in other places. And eventually I was invited to a friend of mine says, well, you got a book? I said, well, <laughs> so I wrote the first book in 2013, which is now, that was rather later. So I didn't start writing about this until I had actually messed with it for many years in the studio to figure out what's what with this. Uh, but that's kind of my journey on all of that. And then I continued to learn from other colleagues. Uh, Ian Howells contributed considerably. Mm -hmm. Now Heidi's, Heidi Moss is contributing more. You know, it's always always more to learn about how this Absolutely. all works. That's kind of my vocal journey and my understanding journey. and. I love uh, it. And Wolf, Wolfgang Zaus contributed a, a a concept that really helped me with how to how to best tune those resonances. 
to take best advantage of it. So, yeah. But I yeah. also draw heavily from successful historic pedagogy. Uh, this is not replacing. It's simply complementing, no. explaining and complementing historic pedagogy. It's quite um, fascinating, isn't it, sometimes when you, you do look back to some of those, you know, past books from yep. many, many years ago, and you read passages and go, they knew, they knew. They knew. They just didn't have the science necessarily right. to back up what they knew. And I feel like sometimes we go a bit kind of full circle, kind of we get we get mm. so kind of obsessed yep. with now we have mm. to have science to prove something, otherwise it doesn't work, that we forget that no. we found no. it first and then we figured out right. what it was. Right. right. <laughs> that's, that's the way it mostly works. Now, voice science has made some contributions that have helped us move forward, but mostly they've explained the best of what's been working long before voice science ever came along. Right. Uh, and there's something recently that I've been talking about it in these terms to get to that topic. There is declarative knowledge and there is procedural knowledge. <clears throat> and the declarative knowledge is the, the what, the objective, more or less stuff that is happening. Procedure, and you can usually put that into words. It's often stuff that's measurable. So science can do that. Procedural knowledge is the how. And the how, procedural knowledge is sensorial. Declarative knowledge you can put into words. It's hard to put procedural knowledge into words. How do you ride a bicycle? How did you make that free throw shot? What, what, are the, what is the feel that your, your brain is talking to your body in terms of sensations? And those are hard to put into words, number one. Number two, mm -hmm. you can describe them from a lot of different perspectives so that they sound like, well, that, why this person says it this way, you say it this way. This is, how can you do that, you know? Well, that's what it is. That's the gold. <laughs> that's actually what, that's what we're trying to accomplish. Procedural knowledge we used to just called ability. <laughs> right. <laughs> Duh. Right? It's ability. It's skill. Well, what is skill? Patterns of per sensations that you know how to do it. You know, now you've got it. And so that's what we're after in the voice lesson all the time. We use declarative knowledge to try to help target procedural outcome. And uh, but ultimately, the singer just needs to know the procedural knowledge. They don't actually have to know the declarative part. No. If, they, if, if but, it, but it usually helps them get to the procedural. Oh, my, my A-Vowel is going to turn over there. Oh, my A-Vowel is going to, I have to let that happen. I have to find the sensation of that. Okay. You know. And that, so that really is the art hmm. of teaching, isn't it? It's knowing how much information is just enough so yep. that they have the, you know, the know-how and the confidence to follow what it is you're asking them to do. Right. Um, but right. not so much that they then get so caught up in their head analyzing every tiny yes. little detail of what they're doing that they can no right. longer just let go and, mm -hmm. and you know, perform. Uh, you know, it's an art form at the end of the day, isn't it? It is. Here's, here's an example of that. So we now know that, vowel, that, that frequency has a tone color. Thank you, Ian Howell. Mm -hmm. A vowel-like tone color. And it goes from dark to bright, low to high, then U to E. And the resonances of the vocal tract feature whatever color that frequency is that they're featuring. 
And those two colors get blended together into this the vowel that we perceive. So ah isn't just ah color, it's O color and ah color <clears throat> blended together. And depending on how your brain is attending to the sound, if your brain is attending to your sound like Wolfgang Zaus's brain, like a harmonic singer's brain, you hear an O harmonic and an A harmonic. But most of us hear linguistically. His, he, he hears spectrally. He hears spectral. We hear linguistically. So our brain blends those together. So we tend to hear the complementary sound, which in this case is the O, as an A, O. But there's A, O in an A if the A is well-balanced or mm -hmm. like a chiaroscuro balanced timbre. And you can demonstrate this easily. I demonstrate this with chiaroscuro whisper. I demonstrate it various ways. If I do an A and close my glottis and go A, well, that sounds like A, doesn't it? Doesn't sound like A because, mm -hmm. that, because that thump is, is low frequency dominant. So it's featuring that lower formant timbre, which though it's literally an O, you're getting a little bit of the ah blended into it. And so it sounds like to us with our linguistic hearing, like an uh. Yeah. So, for, the, so, uh, for those people just listening to this right now, just that you know what just happened there. Ken has this wonderful skill of being able to thump his larynx and make it make sounds. And I feel like this is a skill you need. You need to do a whole tutorial for people on how to do this. Because after any masterclass with Ken, everyone goes away. Something you know, up, hitting up. themselves in the throat to try and recreate this sound that you make. <laughs> I have lots of colleagues that can do this, but basically you close your glottis to create an efficient quarter wave resonator and you find a nice place to thump. And it's easy when you're old and skinny and you have, you have no tissue covering anything anymore. And you, you shape whatever vowel you're doing. And you can thump and it'll, it'll play the first resonance of your vocal tracks. Anyway, crazy. <laughs> so now I've learned using the chiaroscuro whisper, which is another to which plays the second format more dominantly. So if I do a, it'll play the pitches. Those are the pitches of my second format for those vowels. <clears throat> so I can learn to play with the proportions of each of those components by having learned what it feels like to do them. Right. The pitches help me know, excuse me, early morning, <laughs> help me know when it's right. I know exactly the pitches of this. And shockingly, the same pitch targets work pretty much for everybody. In spite of speech research, which indicates that formants are all over the map from different body types. But if we're targeting the same spectral tone color, vowel, we get pretty close to the same pitches, no matter the dimensions, because there's enough flexibility in the system to tune for a particular spectral outcome target. <clears throat> That's my opinion in the matter. That is as yet an unverified <laughs> by science study. Yeah. <clears throat> but... I verify it routinely in the studio with students. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that could uh, anyway. be an easy study for you to do there, Ken. <laughs> yeah. I tell people routinely, and I'm, I'm being kind of deliberate about this these days. I'm not a scientist. I'm not trained in science. Uh, and this it's a very it's a very rigorous discipline that has to be done well, like anything. And I love good science. 
I'm science informed, but I'm not a scientist. Uh, and I, I'm deliberate about it to encourage teachers that we know things, we know things that scientists don't know. Mm -hmm. What do I mean by that? I'll put it this way. Do you think Pavarotti knew some things that the rest of us don't quite know? I think so. Yeah. I think he had some of that procedural knowledge down to a very high degree. Yeah. Hmm. It's procedural knowledge. Well, he used to it describe is, it like a figure of eight, didn't he? That. It is, it is mm -hmm. a kind of knowledge. It is not correct to say that we only know things when science tells us. No, science is wonderful. Uh, this is not an anti-science comment. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different, it, it's very good at measuring things, okay, and telling us what's going on in the objective physical world. And, and it, it has other realms as well as the physical world, but that's its primary area. But uh, we know things too. Uh, and, and, and our part in the conversation, particularly in any conversation involving motor skill, motor behavior, you know, and, and anything that, that requires procedural knowledge. Absolutely. We, we know things. So anyway, so I make that comment to encourage teachers to, yeah, we, our thinking has to be somewhat like a scientist. We come in with, with, with ideas about what's happens, what's going to happen. We try things, we observe the outcome. So we do aspects of the scientific method. We just don't control it with the rigor necessary for good science. Mm. And we're, we're most interested in the perceptual piece. We're as interested in the perceptual piece as the actual piece. Right. Okay. <laughs> because singer singing human experience is utterly subjective. There's no such thing as an objective experience. We experience the objective reality through our senses and our brain's interpretation of the data that our senses sends up there. It's all perception. It's all subjective. Yeah, uh, so right. it's inescapable. Mm. It's inescapable that we have to deal in the subjective. A lot of people object mm. to subjective because they say, well, it's so <laughs> variable. It's yeah. so variable, it's unreliable. It's Human beings what, are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is there is certainly various ways to describe a sensation with words because it's hard to do. But I bet you if we all went outside on a nice clear day and looked up, all of us with normal sight would agree that the sky looks blue. That's an utterly subjective perception of the mm. refraction of light frequencies, okay, mm. by the atmosphere. But we all agree it's blue. There is, while there is variability in subjective perceptions, there is significant common overlap. Right. Okay, I'll give you another example. This one, we have to reverse this one, but as far as I know, it's universal to perceive bright the perception of brightness in sound as being forward and darkness of sound perception as being in the back. As far mm -hmm. as I know, that's a universal perception. We all, mm -hmm. we, at least, you know, huge percentages of us, I would say high 90 percentages of us agree that that's the way it feels. That's the way it seems. Unfortunately, it's misleading because the dominant shaping of 
of bright is, is the pharynx and the dominant shaping of depth is opening the mouth in the front. <clears throat> it's more complicated than that. It's more complicated than that. But, you know, Wolfgang Zaus put me onto that. And I, and I can show you with the Kyoto's go to whisper, which I do in some of the things. I just do this very quickly. If I go off script, just shut me up. Mm -hmm. but, so if I do an E with Kyoto's go to whisper and I do a you're hearing my second formant, which is a B6. I can keep that same pitch tuned to that pitch and open my mouth wide open. If the if the second if the second formant were being dominated by the tuning of the front of my mouth, it couldn't stay the same if I changed the shape of the front of my mouth. Hmm. I'll show you. That that is being the tuning of that. Now it's it's in the entire vocal tract is involved in that. Just so you know, formants don't live in one place in the vocal tract like we thought naively for a while. It's a it's an uh, echoing back and forth of a portion of a wavelength through the entire vocal tract from something called an anti-node to a node, and and sound waves have more than one node and anti-node, two of each usually two or three of each. Anyway. So if you go from one to the other, but but changing shapes of the vocal tract can can affect the length of that portion of a sound wave. Uh, now I got off track, but basically that <laughs> you're still hearing that pitch. Yeah, that means my second formant and that E colored second formant stayed at the same pitch. What stayed more the same, my mouth or my pharynx? My pharynx up to the tongue dorsum stayed more the same. Mm hmm. If I speak through that, what you will hear is the color, the strange sort of tonguey, weird color of the under vowel with my mouth wide open, whereas you're hearing that e e e e e. Mm. e. Mm -hmm. that, that what you're hearing, that's the sound of the under vowel predominantly. For a for an active modification of an e vowel for a high note, that's a good that's a good shape for a high note or an e vowel. If I were doing yeehaw, yeehee, yeehee, up there it sounds like an e. Down here it sounds like a garbled, tonguey mess. But as long as my tongue is comfortable and I'm getting that that acoustic uh, shape that I need works great. Way better than going E up high. E does not work up high. Does not work. So anyway, so there's some declarative knowledge. Oh, I've learned. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people knew how to go yee-haw before anybody ever told them any science. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But it's been it's been so nice to chat to you, Ken. As I said, we we we've had you many times to IVA presenting for us. But it's nice to actually be able to chat to you like this on a more kind of informal and get to know you a bit better and the journey, the amazing journey that you've been on over your career. So we really appreciate you taking the time to join us for this. Absolutely, my pleasure. And sorry I didn't ask you questions and learn about your journeys. <laughs> I will have right, to do it another time. time. Yeah, next time. <laughs>
<laughs> but then just finally one last question for you ken if people want to find out more about you um or your books and or see the videos is there somewhere that people can go to see you yes um i could share the links or you can find the links but if you go to kenbozeman.com um on the home page there it's sort of embedded somewhere in my bio is my faculty link which i still have as an emeritus but it's too long from, you know, it has to do with Lawrence faculty, .edu, all that stuff. But it's right there on that home page. And on that, um, well, first of all, at the KenBosom.com, there's a list of pedagogic resources and information about ordering my books. But, but the, I've duplicated that information also at my faculty website. And in my faculty website, I have my schedule, past schedule. And under recordings, I have recordings of my singing, which I posted back in my teaching days so that people wouldn't be afraid to study with the teacher who lost his voice. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, that's a fair question. I mean, yeah. it's a very fair yeah. question. Yep. You know, okay, what did he sound like? Am I okay mm -hmm. with that? Yep, I'm okay with it. So I posted my recordings, so they're there. But below my recordings, it says things like interviews and presentations on voice acoustics. And I have a host of videos from any time I do something like this, or or if I think it's useful for anybody else to see. Um, and I'm given permission by the hosting organization after a period of time, you know, after they're done using it when their purposes, I'll post it. Yeah. So you can find quite a few like for instance, I did the keynote for the British Voice Association last yeah. September, that's posted there. It's a 90 minute lecture uh, that overviews most of the stuff I talk about. But there's several others there, and it's all just free, free access stuff. Wow! Right. Sounds like an excellent interview leading up to that with David Howard. You may know who David Howard is. He's a, a British acoustics engineer, brilliant fellow. And since they had to postpone their their conference, they wanted to do some teasers to keep people interested. So they did these hour long interviews. So David Howard and I had an hour long conversation about voice acoustics. That's on there. Wow. <laughs> well, we'll make sure we will put links in our show notes to all of those things so that people can find them because there's some amazing resources there. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ken. Yeah, thank yes, you. Yes. Thank you for having me. It's always thank a pleasure. Indeed. And we look forward to seeing you soon in the future at more events with IVA. Mm -hmm. Be happy to. So, yeah, that was Ken. Oh, he's such a nice bloke. And it was really nice, actually, hearing him talk about um, his childhood. He did kind of, mm. he kind of brighten up a bit while he was talking about singing as a child. And um, yeah, not something you hear him talk about very often. So that was really interesting. It is. And that, you know, that's kind of why we do these podcasts, isn't it? To get to know these things that aren't necessarily in the mainstream or you know talked about because everybody just goes straight into the science and the acoustics and stuff like that right. but it's nice to get to know the person behind it it is it's good to see where their motivation lies for their particular interest um yeah i still can't wrap my head around why someone would be that into physics but you know mm -hmm. <clears throat> that's just me <laughs> you know some people just enjoy it like people enjoy that strange people no, yeah. we love them really. We, the world needs that balance, people, um, and and we are really grateful for people like Ken who will kind of, uh, you know, understand things and pursue it at a really kind of deep level, and then attempt to explain it to us mere mortals, yeah. so that we might actually gather something from it and be able to utilize it in our teaching. 
And Ken's so. really good at that. You know, he's very good at doing the practical. He doesn't just talk about the subject, you know, with his throat clicking at something. And these, the, what is it, the chiaroscuro whisper and chiaroscuro, chiaroscuro, I can never say that chiaroscuro word. whisper, yeah. That one, yeah. And then, I mean, even on his website, he has examples of him teaching and working with students, both in private and like in the lab when they're studying. So, you know, it, it's, it's nice to see the practical side because that's it something is. That really... It's useful to be able to hear the concepts that people are talking about because, you know, it's one thing knowing things in theory, but being able to identify what they're talking about by the way it sounds that's the key to being able to apply it really isn't it yeah and even being able to see that the effect that it has you know this worked you know it's easy to talk about why it works but when you actually see it in action you and sometimes that helps people to click because like oh right okay well i heard her do this thing in her bridge and so then he did this and that makes sense to me now so that can sometimes help with people's learning as well i know that certainly helps me as opposed to reading the physics <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm all about practical application, please. Show me how this actually is useful to me. Yeah, um, and then I, I And then I become more interested. Yeah, definitely. Um, but Ken has, if people are interested, as we mentioned during the interview, Ken has a wealth of resources on his website. You know, he says that he has all the interviews he's ever done, links to papers, links to other things that he just he has this massive resource so we will pop link in the show notes so that you can access that and see everything ken's been doing and then he also has his two books uh, that are out the second one came out was it last year or was it the year before yeah i haven't got that one yet i need to add that to me a bookshelf i've got his first book and actually it's quite a short book which is nice It's <laughs> such a heavy subject. It's it's a short enough book that you feel like it's manageable to get through it and actually try and get, you know, the information from it. So uh, I quite liked that. Yeah, so we'll pop links to both of his books in the show notes as well. And you can check those out because they are a, a nice resource to have in your studio. Absolutely. So um who who are we interviewing next episode, Tom? Well, next episode, actually, is the lovely Heidi Moss, who's joining us. Who Ken mentioned in his interview. He he's did. doing... Um, They're good friends. He's doing a class somewhere with her in... Uh, did he say he was in um, St. He's Andrews? in St. St. Andrews in Scotland, so just around the corner from where I live. And uh, I believe it's in August 2023 that Ken, Heidi, and was it Stephen Smith? I think he said there was, there was three of them, Heidi and Ken, and then another person. They were coming up for a week-long conference voice workshop. I think it's at Andrews University. So yeah. if we if the details are live when this webinar, no, when this podcast goes out, we'll put a link in that show notes for that as well. Yeah, I'm going to look that one up. Yeah, it'd be quite nice to go up and meet Ken and Heidi and yeah, see them pick in the their brains. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. yeah so Heidi is our next episode and we had a lovely chat with Heidi she had lots to say about many things many things she is a very knowledgeable lady she's but lovely. we will save was... that we'll keep you in yes. suspense on that I'm not going to give know. you too much information you know you can wait make yeah. sure that you get the next episode how do they make sure they get the next episode Tom well, yeah, so you, if you don't want to miss Heidi, you've got to go to wherever you you consume your podcasts and subscribe <laughs> or follow, depending on the platform. Sounds very lunch-reoriented, doesn't it? Consume. 
and uh, make sure you subscribe and if you enjoyed this if you could help us out by leaving us a little review just to let people know that this is fun to listen to that would really help us out you know i think we're still number yeah. one in chile for performing arts i love that yeah. <laughs> thank you why, for listening all great. you chileans mm. out there and everyone yes. else thank you it's for listening very... to us yeah we appreciate we... you we hope you find it helpful getting yeah. to know these people and you know biscuits of the world <laughs> <laughs> i opened I, I opened a pack of biscuits this week been very naughty and they were biscuits we bought for christmas that we forgot put in the cupboard and forgot <laughs> you know so it's like folk were sitting with a cup of tea on christmas day and we're like something's missing from this and then realize it was the biscuits in the back of the cupboard anyway there was a dark chocolate orange ot biscuit with Ooh, like oh that sounds good it was very very oh. tasty my partner does not like dark chocolate so i was like oh more for me oh, perfect <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm trying to be good. I had friends around at the weekend and, and teas came out. And then my husband had bought like these amazing chocolate chip cookies with a chocolate <gasps> coating on mm. the top. Oh, and yes. he put them on the table and I'm like, I'm trying to be good. So I sat there and watched everybody else eat them. <laughs> oh, that's very good. I would have just said, it's stuff very it. controlled. <laughs> um, no, I've, I've had a, a week of biscuits. <laughs> it won't last long. I'll soon, I'll soon start giving it again. <laughs> for now i'm trying to be good <laughs> well done well done good for you uh, wonderful yeah so anyway thank you for listening everybody we hope you have a wonderful day whatever you are doing and make sure you join us next time to talk to heidi <laughs> <laughs>